is ready. Ready? Ready? Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I'm Drew. How's it going, everybody? Hey, hey. This week, we're continuing our series read-through of Gundam The Origin. I believe we are on Volume 8. If you haven't caught up to us with this point, you'll know that this is a monthly series, and we've done breakdowns of each of the preceding volumes so if you want to catch up you can definitely listen to those episodes but otherwise we are on volume eight here we are existing in the now that is correct today we are covering mobile suit gundam the origin volume eight operation odessa this is by yoshikazu yasuhiko translated by melissa tanaka published in north america in english by vertical so, after the past few volumes of flashback material, we are back in the present day story. How's it feel, Albert? How's it feel to be back in 0079? Uh So truth be told, and this might be this might be telling of my attention to detail. This might be if 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 you're uh an avid listener of this podcast and you know us then You'll know that of the two of us, I'm probably the more aloof one. Uh, So it took me a while to realize. I I really wasn't sure that we were, whether we were still in flashback territory or not. But, you know, once once I saw uh, Amaro and all the characters, uh, I was like, okay, okay. I'm, I'm pretty confident we're back in the present now. Albert, do you skip reading the recap pages at the beginning of the book? Uh, I think, okay, so generally I do, but I also do read them on occasion, but I'll also admit that I read them with less attention than I do the the regular main part of the story. Um, I think I just kind of breeze through them to try to, to catch myself up on, on, uh, like, you know the larger plot plot points that have occurred mm-hmm. just to mm-hmm. remind myself what's going happened in the past but i don't necessarily pay attention to the closer details of times and dates of things you know stuff like that sure sure yeah that that's actually only annoying in real life but when it comes to comics it doesn't bug me at all really <laughs> 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 you know those times when you forgot we were meeting up <laughs> we're being well that's different i mean those there are actual stakes to that <laughs> uh you'll just be like where were you and i'm just gonna be you know in the middle of eating a burger or something and i'll just be like i don't know man having lunch <laughs> i thought we were doing something today man <laughs> yeah so there we go um yeah that that's what i was gonna ask so did they mention uh the specific dates and times of things was that something i had glossed over uh because if i had paid attention to that would i have been aware of of our return i think if you had had read the opening couple pages the basically the opening crawl with all the recap stuff uh, right before chapter one officially begins it, it tells you like all the stuff 
in broad strokes that we've yeah. read up to so far. So it it uh clearly tells us that we're we're done with the flashback sequences that chronicled the rise of Zeon from the past three volumes. We're back where we left off. White Base has helped the Federation successfully fight off a Zeon attack in Jabro, their headquarters, which was uh, the last thing that we read that took place in the present day. Yeah. So, yeah, after receiving some additional repairs and supplies and a few additional crew members, White Base is off to join a bigger Federation force to begin a counterattack against Zeon's main Earth headquarters in Odessa. Yeah. And there's actually a bit of writing at the end of the recap pages that I thought was pretty good in terms of just summarizing not only where we are, but uh, kind of underlying underlining the themes of the story too, because it says, far from taking Jabro, Xeon forces failed even to destroy the ships and mobile suits under construction for a counterattack, and Federation Command resolved to launch their great counteroffensive on Odessa. White Base and her crew deemed capable in battle, were sent toward the next front. Whether the youths can survive tomorrow, none are given to know. <laughs> I like that closing line there. Whether the yeah. youths can survive tomorrow, none are given to know. That pretty much sums up. I, I wanted Johnson. to mention that all my life, all I've ever wanted was someone to describe me as capable. Not good, not exceptional, just capable. <laughs> Albert, you are a person. <laughs> See, you know how to talk to me. You're speaking my language, Drew. <laughs> you are a human being, man. Albert, you literally occupy space. <laughs> uh, what more could I ask for? Uh, I think you could ask for a whole lot more than that. Yeah, but what can I get? Oh, okay. Nothing. <laughs> uh, you always got to finish those sentences with that. <laughs> yeah, we're nothing if we're not honest to ourselves. Right. Yeah. Uh, how many volumes have we read so far that took place in the flashback? That was like, what, three volumes at this point? That was point? three, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it picks up right where... The last uh, story in the present takes place, and like you mentioned, it's it's just about them getting ready for their big counteroffensive. So this volume definitely had a lot going on. I'd say there are like two primary arcs to it, like mm -hmm. a first half and the second half, which we'll go into. But you know, overall, they were pretty engaging stories. I was. I was, uh, I'd say the first half uh, tore up my heart, and the second half put me on the edge of my seat as I, uh, as I was preparing for, you know, the thrills and the chills of uh, whatever military actions were going to take place and however they were going to pan out. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. What about you? Same. This was a, a thicker volume, too, just in terms of pages. I, I think it's a little it's got more pages than the last couple of volumes we read and uh, 11 chapters. I, th I feel like most of the other ones we had didn't really go past eight or nine. Yeah, but, I don't think uh, I remembered them hitting double digits. Yeah. So definitely a good amount of 
story in here, but it also was a pretty quick read just because you can't really stop turning the page. And there's also a lot of wordless sequences for the battles. Yeah, I think that's a fair uh, or an accurate representation. Um, it, like I said, you know, we were just, I, I certainly was just so caught up and engaged in it that uh, it, it didn't feel like a drag. It, it, I, I was constantly on the move, wanting to know what happened to each of the respective characters and just wanting to know how the overall, uh, I guess, plot elements would play out in this specific chapter. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually, what you mentioned earlier, too, about how there were essentially two big arcs in this volume, It thinking about it like that, it, it does work because I feel like the first half, that first story is pretty personal kind of heart-wrenching type of story whereas the second one is like the bigger military war kind of story that has ramifications for like all the people who live in their in their world you know exactly exactly it's so, um, yeah they really complemented each other as a reading experience yeah it's the personal experience of war uh contrasted against the larger overall stakes of war i guess Mm -hmm. is how i would put it yeah yeah shall we dive in with our chapter by chapter recaps and commentary let's let's get to it all right so i'll start with the first chapter in this book and all the chapters are also labeled sections for whatever reason so i might use that term interchangeably But here we go. Section one. Char leads a submarine task force that is trailing a big Federation fleet of carriers sailing to England. They manage to take out some of those ships without any risk to themselves. Meanwhile, White Base is flying towards Belfast, Ireland. A young local woman named Miharu spots the ship, and it's quickly apparent that she's a spy for Xeon as she provides reports and updates that find their way back to Char. White base docks at Belfast, and as the crew disembark, Miharu solicits them at the dock under the pretense of trying to sell them trinkets and goods. They ignore her and keep it moving. There's a formal meeting with Federation brass, including General Revel. The plan is for White base to act as the vanguard for the counterattack. The Federation forces are going to attack the Xeon Earth Force's central command in Odessa. As Revel gives a speech, Kai disrespectfully excuses himself from the meeting and grumbles about being asked to to throw their lives away for lofty leaders he doesn't respect. Later that evening, Kai, dressed in his civvies and toting a duffel of his belongings, leaves White Base. It seems that even Bright has had enough of his attitude and antics. Kai heads into the city and comes across Miharu again. She offers to put him up for a couple nights, and it doesn't seem like Kai has many other options, so he goes with her. And at the end of the chapter, Char's sub launches a new amphibious mobile suit called the Gog, and it unsubtly heads towards White Base. Thoughts, yeah. Albert? It's interesting reading this chapter because, uh, I mean, we do see all of those elements play out that we've talked about in previous chapters about youth and their mistrust of the leadership. You know, it's interesting because 
we saw this play out with Amaro in one of the previous chapters, and to see it play out with Kai at this point, who really has just been more of a side character, maybe even com- comedic relief uh, at some point. But I'd say this was the most we saw from him up to this point, I, yeah. unless I'm remembering it wrong. So, no, I think you're right. Yeah, so we're really watching him strike out on his own. He's really make taking a stance, making uh, a statement and a comment on, you know, what the average person's outlook is on um, on faulty leadership, you know, and for him to take that position and just to be like, for one, it's kind of weird because. I get it. Their situation is kind of a dire one. So everyone's kind of on edge, but it does feel like everyone's attitude towards the process and towards the procedure is pretty lax, you know, like Mm -hmm. people are just kind of constantly mouthing off at the higher ups or just (laughs) taking off. Like there's no formalities or decorum. It's really... Like I get you, it. You think that you could be shot for desertion in a time exactly, of war? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But at the same time, um, like I said, things are kind of dire. They're the 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 structures that are in place are kind of at their breaking point because they've just been under siege for such a long period of time. They've just been, you know, pushed to the max in terms of what they've had to deal with. So I guess that's a pretty accurate way to present it, right? Because after a while, it'd just be like, what do these ranks even mean if we're just holding on by a thread, you know? Like, mm-hmm. and and the scene where he just goes, I'm getting out of here because I don't... Res-. And like like you said, in uh, in a, in a fully realized military situation... He would probably be shot or court-martialed or something. Some sort of reprimand would have taken place, right? Yeah. But instead, from what I remember, I think Bright's just like, he's taking half a night off or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Bright pretty much much knows what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like not even worth it to him to, to do anything to Kai. Yeah. So he makes it sound like, oh, yeah, I told him he could take the night off. And, and, you know, so... It almost felt like he was saying, if you're here in the morning, you're here in the morning. If not, then whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That's good leadership. <laughs> you know what, though? I I kind of liked Bright for doing that because, honestly, when things are as dire as they are, sometimes you have to you have to know what your priorities are and, you know... If it's going to kill morale or if it's going to just be more trouble to, like, deal with this guy and make an example of him in front of everyone, it's a lose-lose situation. So it's almost better off just going, this guy's not worth it. If he just disappears into the night, then I can come up with some sort of fiction to make up for it. And (laughs) because we got other things to deal with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And what did you say the girl's name was in this again? The she's a new character. Mm-hmm. Miharu. Yeah. Uh, I think right off the bat, 
you know, if you're going to take a conventional reading of the book and presume that you as the reader are on the side of the Federation, which isn't always a given. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I would have thought that that would have been the logical way to look at it, but who knows, man? People is weird. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, this this one character, like you mentioned right off the bat, she's a spy, so you're already inclined not to like her. You're already inclined to know that she's a treacherous traitor, a backstabber, uh, a low-down, good-for-nothing, rootin' tootin', uh, treasonous such-and-such. Such. <laughs> <laughs> I ran out of words. <laughs> I ran out of words. <laughs> But yeah, um, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but you you do see they 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 set her up as someone for you to to root against. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, we'll talk about her further, but that's that was generally my impression of her starting off. What about you? Yeah, I think for me, one one thing that made me think. Uh, or one thought that I had this time around was Miharu is kind of an unusual name for an Irish girl, isn't it? <laughs> what? She's, you know, from the long lost clan of Miharu. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> <Aye>, Lassie. Hi, <laughs> Miharu Lassie. You know, I forgot to—I forgot if I asked you this in the last episode or not. But do you have respect for General Revel, the guy with the beard? Uh. So here's the thing. I'm pretty new to Gundam. I'd say this is my first real deep dive into Gundam. Uh. Certainly as an adult, so. Other than watching Iron-Blooded Orphans, which has nothing to do with this, really. That's true. Other than watching Iron-Blooded Orphans, and I did watch War in the Pocket when I was younger. Um, mm-hmm. But I was going to say, this guy, uh, Revel, I think he's someone who's sort of famous in the lore of Gundam. Uh, in that, I feel like I see, I've seen him around before, even if I hadn't had any real exposure to Gundam, like... You know, he's he's kind of a mainstay in the Gundam mythos. Am I right in presuming that? I think so. Okay. So the way that I've always looked at him, and even when you look at him compared to some of the other more seasoned uh, leadership characters, he does seem more distinguished, more put together, more admirable, you know? Yeah. Like, he's not a clown, where whereas... There are some people uh, who are in their leadership who look pretty foolish. Uh, yeah. Just in terms of their mannerisms and just how they're drawn. So it's interesting finally reading it and watching this guy because at a glance, I've always thought of him as kind of the ideal leadership character, uh, the the quintessential, you know, heroic captain or whatever. Yeah. And... Reading it now, he seems pretty, well, let's say his record isn't the greatest. I think on paper, it you could very easily say that he's a, he's an incompetent 
He uh, lost the biggest battle of the war. Yeah. In fact, he failed upward because he lost that battle. And yet they rescued him. They turned it into this huge uh, uh, propaganda yeah. like um, event. And then they they put him in charge of the war anyways. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's absurd to people on the face of it. But if you've read enough military history, stuff like that does happen where for whatever reason, the worst kind of people just happen to be in the right place at the right time. And they're the ones that get promoted. And, you know, you go through a number of those kinds of generals until you get the, the person that you need. Yeah. Unless, unless you lose once and for all with that guy. And, but by then it's kind of a moot point. Yeah. It'll um, be too late. Yeah. But my point being, um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting to peer behind the curtain of like the image of what they've established for this guy and to see that this guy wasn't as capable or as smart as I thought he was. And he's kind of petty, too, you know, because the, the last big thing that happened was uh, was a, the, the Zeons were willing to let him go. Well, OK, we don't know that they were willing to let him go, but. They what was what's his name Garma? It was it was implied, right? Yeah. The well, even then, I I I'm not a hundred percent sure like who officially let him go or how that officially played out, but I think you could safely say that they let him go after that conversation between him and uh who's the what's Degwin? the name of the guy and Degwin and Degwin was like, if you were to be let go, do you think you'd uh be able to talk your your side down would we be able to make our way back to you know to peace yeah. talks so yep. after that the escape goes through and revel gets out of there and what happens first thing he does <laughs> when he gets back is we can't let these bastards get away with this <laughs> <laughs> what a way to go man and it's so, just like so you would have respected him more if he had been like we need to sue for peace immediately there's no way that we can let this conflict continue that's tough see um i think knowing what i know and seeing the aftermath of just how many people died it's hard to look at that and be like yeah man the 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 smart thing to do now is to keep fighting because the advantage is on our side because <laughs> you know half the population of the universe is dead yeah. So we can only we can only move upwards from here. <laughs> but then again, uh, you know, to to draw this back to real world, real life things, I look at something like what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, and I've been keeping up with the news. And one of the things that Zelensky was talking about was how, even though they're having quote unquote peace talks, he was saying that there is no way that he will secede or uh that he will cede any of his territory to to putin or to russia yeah you know and maybe maybe it's because we're in a place and in a time where it's still relatively early on in the war it hasn't we're not 10 years in and like millions of lives down at this point so maybe it's easy for me to go yeah, man, like, you shouldn't give it up to him. You should totally stand your ground and just make him pay for every inch. But 
you know, that that attitude has a way of getting tired real quick, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. It's it's a complicated thing, and it's it's hard for me to say. I think sitting where I am and, you know, doing a Monday, mon- Monday morning quarterbacking, I can look at that and be like, yeah, maybe he should have sued for peace, but emotionally, I get it. It's a heavy burden to carry that kind of leadership because whatever you end up doing is going to affect a whole lot of lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost too much for a normal person to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the only thing that I can do is take myself out of the the mindset of uh, you know the if I, if I take a step back and look at it and go you know whatever Yaz is 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 writing he he's got a point to it so maybe me wanting it to end out end up one way or another is probably not a realistic expectation yeah you, did you have any thoughts or did you want to try to move on to chapter two section two we can move on to section two. Let's go for it. Kai makes himself at home in Miharu's house as they have a modest dinner, one bread roll per person, with her cute little kid brother and sister. Meanwhile, the Xeon forces have begun attacking White Base with a fusillade of missiles and the GOG mobile suit. It's utter chaos at the dock as explosions rock the entire area and Hayato and Job John sortie in the gun tank. Slugger Law and his squad rush back to White Base in a jeep and almost get killed by the GOG. Miharu heads out and meets another Xeon spy that night who gives her a bunch of money, a Federation uniform, and instructions to infiltrate White Base by any means necessary. She quickly returns home to give the money to her little siblings exchanging a poignant goodbye as well as a promise to return and take them to a place with no war after she completes this last job. Kai, meanwhile, had noticed a gun hidden in Miharu's basket while she was gone and seems to suspect something is amiss. Combined with the attack at the docks, he leaves the house before she returns. He wanders towards the dock, witnessing the battle and remembering his various comrades, Eventually, he sprints back towards White Base. Shar has one more mobile suit in his sub, but after seeing that White Base hasn't deployed the Gundam, but Jim's instead, he allows the original designated pilot to board the Zok mobile suit. In the chaos and confusion at the dock, Miharu, dressed in a Federation uniform, sneaks aboard White Base. So, first thing I want to say, Albert, Whenever I watch the Gundam anime and they talk about or they say the name of the Federation general purpose mobile suit, they call it a gym. But every time I see it in print, I just see GM. (laughs) (laughs) Could I add to that? Yeah. As I was reading it, uh, I think I, I, I lost that. Or, or I might have glossed over that specific section. So I I think there were times where I would see GM in the text as I was reading it, and I'd 
I would always pause to take a couple of seconds to try to figure out what the GM stood for. And then ultimately I would give up and just tell myself it's probably some sort of mobile suit and move on with that. So whenever I saw that, I just went with the shorthand, which was it's probably the name or designation for a specific type of mobile suit. And, you know, I shouldn't overthink it because it's just going to end up taking more time trying to figure out what the GM stands for. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, I don't know if it stands for anything, but that's, the designation of that mobile suit. I think we were first introduced to it back in the Battle of Jabro when we saw that the Federation had developed the whole mass of them. Like they mass produced them. They're basically like poor man's versions of the Gundam for you know mass production, so that all of their troops have access to a, a mobile suit. Yeah. But uh, I yeah, it's just imagine from... they're just cannon fodder. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just amusing to me because in my head when i read it i always see gm and i i just automatically think general manager or you know general motors or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that's my but first I, thought is general but when motors. i watch the anime they always call it jim yeah i always thought general motors myself but <laughs> i i, I kind of doubt it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah this section was you know we we see a little bit more of uh what Kai goes and does while he's out there. We learn a little more about Meharu, you know, and as usual, whenever they introduce a cute uh, brother and sister or cute kids into the situation, as with any story uh, or, or with this, uh, with any story with stakes this high, you, you always know that there's like added pathos value right there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Something sad is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's, Let's make sure these kids also have a puppy and uh, there's, a, you know, an adorable old couple, a grandma and grandpa, grandpa couple that just say sweet, nice things to them and, you know, talk about how they're going to live happy, lovely lives out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that moment when Miharu comes back to the house after she gets the money and she says goodbye to her siblings and there's like this whole scene where she promises to them that she's going to take them away from all this you know basically telling them that once i finish this last job we'll have enough money and we'll we'll go somewhere safe and we won't have to worry about the war and you just know in your heart you know even if you haven't read ahead or if you've never watched the anime you just know that it it's not gonna end the way that she's saying it's gonna of course it's yeah. famous last words. Exactly, exactly. That's why if if America ever comes under attack and I happen to have a child in my life, I'm going to tell that kid, nothing's going to get better. In fact, this is probably the best that your life is ever going to get. And I just want you to know that every second after this is just a race towards the bottom. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I say this every episode, but I can't wait until you have kids, man. <laughs> I'm super excited for you to be a dad. And I'm super excited that my kids get to have me as a dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I did think that that was a pretty touching scene between her and, um, you know, her brother and her sister. Like, Mm -hmm. of course, like it, it, it's gotta be this really moving moment where she talks about how if circumstances weren't what they were, they wouldn't have to do what they would have to do. But, you know, with uh, 
doing what she does is going to allow them to escape this hell that is their lives. So it's it it's contradictory to what you saw earlier to what I was talking about earlier, where you know you see her and she's a traitor to them, and you think, oh, she's just doing this for money, but then they introduce the kid brother and the kid sister, and it's just like, oh man, that's <laughs> yeah, she's just trying to get by. Yeah, their yeah. parents are obviously dead, and she's just trying yeah. to take care of them. Yeah, yeah. So, and then uh, I do also think that the scene with Kai, again, it's it's contradictory to the earlier scene where, at, at in the earlier section, he's just kind of done with the whole thing, but right here, he sees the attack coming, and he knows <clears throat> that they're gonna need him. And mm-hmm. I do think this is true to a lot of like real war experiences and like war fiction, but it's just that idea that when situations are tough, you're not necessarily doing this at the end of the day, you're not necessarily doing this for country. You're not necessarily doing this for your leaders, but you do it for, you know, like your your brothers in arms. Yeah. Your, your comrades. Exactly. Right. So Mm -hmm. in spite of, his uh, disrespect for for the leadership and for what they stand for. Like, he knows that his friends are going to be in trouble and that they're going to need him, you know? Yeah. And it's a pretty heroic moment from him for him to consciously make that decision to, to go back and be like, you know, whether I like it or not, they need me. And I, I don't think I could live with myself if I didn't, tell if i didn't know that i didn't do everything i can to like save their lives you know yeah yeah i mean he would never vocalize that but yeah from yeah. from his actions that's that's exactly what we see exactly it's, it's he has that that funny character type where he's so outwardly cynical and even when he's by himself as he's walking away and he's reminiscing on the various uh comrades that he's had from Sela to Ryu Jose to Bright and Amuro. And like, he's, he's basically got a response to everything that he's imagining them saying to him. Like he, he really is just turning his back on all that stuff on the war. Yeah. And he says he's never, he never asked to be a soldier. And then it's, it's not until like this moment where he hears an explosion and he looks in the distance and he sees the gun tank take a hit. And that, that's what, makes him uh it motivates him it fires exactly yeah exactly he just he's like you idiot why are you standing out in the open like that you're gonna get killed yeah can't bear to watch and he just runs towards the base yeah it's like i said earlier like we don't really see too much from kai up to this point he's kind of a jerk he's more comedy relief uh, just one of the background characters, but he's always making those comments to to like undermine the more traditionally heroic characters, the characters that that do value, uh, you know, duty and uh, military pride and stuff. Like he's always saying something to undercut that sort of discipline. But yeah. when it gets down to it, like you kind of like it's easy to see him in the beginning as this guy who just wants to. He's just trying to save his own skin, you know. Like he did. Like anybody else, he obviously doesn't want to die. Uh, yeah. But he he goes into battle begrudgingly uh, because they they really have no choice. And then 
uh, it's not until like this moment where you finally see, I guess, some interiority from him because you 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 do get to see him over these few pages kind of work things out in his mind and you see him processing stuff and ultimately it's his actions that reveal his character yeah 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 and i do think that that's consistent with the type of character he is right it's mm-hmm. i guess at the end of the day you might look at him as the bastard with a heart of gold archetype of character you know yeah just again just a, a dude who's got a cynical hard shell but ultimately in his way he cares about the people that are in his life dude uh i need to up? write that down and put that in my dating profile <laughs> <laughs> feel free man see what that gets you <laughs> i'm i'm going to i'm going to mark down this timestamp so i can listen to your exact words and quote that and i'm going to take that as a description of myself <laughs> i mean the the one thing that I want to reiterate is really early on, uh, even in the flashback, or, or the thing I wanted to reiterate was in the flashback episodes when you do see him for the first time, he's part of a rowdy group of like punk kids, basically. You know, he's like the the stereotypical anime delinquent type. Yeah, 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 exactly. So to see him go from that to to this moment where he chooses to put himself willingly in danger for other people instead of his own selfish goals. It's uh it's it's some pretty impressive character development in, yeah. in just this one story. Totally. You know? Totally. Really makes you care about him beyond just oh, he's beyond him just being one of the background characters that are just there to make Amaro look more interesting or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, moving on to section three. In a fury, Kai makes it back to White Base and gets in his gun cannon. Just when Hayato and Job John are about to eat it, Kai saves them in the nick of time, destroying the enemy Gog with a point-blank shot to ensure that he wouldn't send any beam fire towards the direction of Miharu's house. Shar decides to pull back from the attack and he recalls the remaining Xeon mobile suit. After the battle, Sailor receives encrypted orders from Federation Command. At dawn, White Base is to head south towards Gibraltar to take part in Operation H. As the ship takes off, Miharu sneaks into Bright's office, but fortunately for her, Kai catches her and stashes her in his room. Amuro sees Kai sneaking her in there, but doesn't recognize her, and Kai tells him to keep quiet about it. Bright calls Kai to his office and chews him out for almost deserting. Kai returns to his room afterwards and sulks about everything with Miharu. The chapter ends with the Federation surface forces beginning an attack on Gibraltar. Yeah. I don't really feel like there's quite as much to say in this uh, particular section. It's really establishing uh, the things that are to come. Mm -hmm. I will say that it was a pretty cool battle, and watching him fight that uh, zombie and just, again, the gog. the gog, and just being able to take it out with a single shot right into the 
right to the heart of the thing where the pilot is. The cockpit, it's a pretty badass yeah. moment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, even the little detail about him trying to make sure that he wasn't going to shoot in the direction of Miharu's house, that I feel like that adds an extra dimension to it because it shows that he's still thinking about other people and worried about the collateral damage that probably, uh, you know, you if he had, if a soldier didn't think about that, you can't really blame him because it's like a life and death situation. But right, the fact right. that he had it in his mind to make sure that he wouldn't shoot a shot a stray shot towards where people live. That's that's pretty good on on Kai, man. Yeah, yeah. Again, just more. It gives you more of a reason to like him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and again, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty badass moment. And uh, yeah, I, I don't want to give away too much again, but it, it's it's definitely a moment amongst several in this chapter where. I think it's fair to say up to this point, the Federation, maybe they've been in a back and forth with the Xeons, but for the most part, I'd say that they've been taking the uh, bigger hits on their end. I mean, the the the, the Xeons are basically in their backyard and just dominating mm-hmm. them in their home, right? So, exactly. you know, what's what's more demoralizing than that? So for them to have this moment it's it's a good win in this one particular battle but as the the book as this volume uh proceeds they do have a couple more good ones and you just kind of feel like the momentum is changing uh mm-hmm. you know I mean, they are after all on their way to a counterattack. this is the moment right exactly yeah the, the federation is moving towards the zeon earth base Actually, there is something about this whole the way that this whole campaign works that reminds me of like World War II. Even though this story is taking place in Europe, it it actually does remind me a little bit of the Pacific Theater in World War II, because like just how U.S. forces slowly fought over different islands in these bloody campaigns because they were trying to capture a closer launching point to Japan. And that's uh-huh. sort of like what the Federation is doing here with attacking Gibraltar because they, they're trying to get a launching base to go to Odessa. Uh-huh. I feel like there is something in the way that the war campaign element of the story in Gundam is presented. It, it does remind me of World War II. And there's some stuff later on that I, I think feels even more uh, explicit. Oh, Oh yeah, that that makes sense. I I do think that Yaz, like I don't know, uh, you might I think you might have mentioned that in the past that he he's like a history buff. Yeah, uh, I I'm, I'm pretty sure he's that. a history buff. Yeah, so it wouldn't surprise me if they studied those wars and the tactics involved like closely and applied that logic to how these wars would play out you know Mm -hmm. uh so it it totally makes sense to me that they would establish it that way yeah do you remember this cartoon from the 90s called exo squad i do i never watched it uh i think it was always on at just the worst time for me because i was either on the way to school or i just missed it when i was getting home 
So mm-hmm. I never really got a chance to watch it. I was aware of it, but yeah, uh, it's something that people my age do talk about quite a bit and uh, with fondness. Yeah, that was a cartoon I liked a lot when I was a kid, and it's a uh, an American, maybe maybe Canadian, I forget, but a North American mecha show actually. And I remember uh, some years ago I was reading up uh, about the show, and I found this interview with the creator of Exo Squad, and he said that Gundam was a pretty big inspiration to him in creating the show, and. One of the things that, for some reason, I just remember this random tidbit, but I remember he said that in his mind, uh, the original Mobile Suit Gundam was like the uh, Pacific Theater, and he envisioned Exo Squad as the European theater of World War II. That's pretty interesting. I, like, for Western cartoons not to really have an equivalent of Gundam or or really any good mech shows it's cool that they at least have exo squad you know yeah like i can't really think of too many western cartoons that i would identify as you know mecha or anything like that or or yeah, or anything. I feel like close. there's got to be something, but I, I just it's not coming <clears throat> to mind right now. Or maybe maybe if there was something that came out, maybe it was when I was too old and not paying attention to cartoons. I don't know. I remember one. Uh, there was this one that came out on uh, Cartoon Network. It was probably at that point where you had aged out, but I, you know, me being me, I was catching cartoons you know, whenever I have a chance or whatever, right? Uh-huh. And uh, I do remember that there was this one, I, I forget what the name of it was, but it was... Uh, oh, it was, I, was it Megas XLR? Yeah, yeah. That was pretty bad. <laughs> oh, he didn't like that one? <laughs> it was it was very American, because it was about a dude who had a monster truck that could become uh, a mecha or something like that, I think. And <laughs> okay. I just wasn't... I was never really into the art style, um, and even though it had a giant robot, I wasn't. Yeah, I couldn't say that I was too into the look of the robot or the idea that these people in monster trucks were fighting whatever they were fighting. I don't even really remember what they were fighting. It could have been monsters, could have been other robots, whatever. But yeah, it just never did it for me. <laughs> yeah, I think I only remember that because it had a an unusual title, but. Uh, I never really watched it either. It came out when I was in college, so I, I think I'd heard of it in passing, you know, during commercials or whatever, but I never yeah. sat down and tried it. Yeah. And like I said, the the art style just never really did it for me. Uh, I wanted, I, I think I wanted to like it just because it had a giant robot, but I, I just couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that's not something you would revisit? I don't think so. It's I spend a lot of time on a cartoon community like YouTube, and that's not something anyone really talks about. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's pretty lost to time. Too bad. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of the scene where uh, Meharu, you know, is hiding out and ends up 
you know, hiding in Bright's office before Kai finds her. And, uh, you know, they have essentially mutual understanding before he, mm-hmm. he hides her. Like, that did was, you have any thoughts on that? There, there was something pretty funny about it, actually. That That was something that was comic relief, I think, because she sneaks into the office, looks around, pokes around the drawers and whatnot, and then hears somebody coming. And it's funny that she the only place that she thinks to hide is just like right under the desk. And just you know, Where there's else a chair can in she front hide? Of there there was nowhere. <laughs> it's like it was funny. It is funny, it is funny. And then she's just crouched there, hoping against hope that whoever walked in won't find her. And then yeah. Kai walks in and he actually doesn't see her Im- immediately. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of makes you question his awareness levels. But then when she, I guess when she moves around, the uniform she's wearing rips, so it makes a little sound. And then he starts checking his own uniform because he thinks he tore something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's something. Even then, that's his first. That's his instinct. Is was that me? <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny, man. It it, it made is. me chuckle. It is. And but then the it's... the scene when when he brings her into his room and just stashes her there, but Amro gets a glimpse. The way that Yaz draws Kai's face when he tells Amro to to shut up and not say anything, that was a pretty funny drawing too. Like just yeah, just um, he just looked insanely mad for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking yeah. at page one nineteen. He's discolored. Uh. There might or might not be like a throbbing vein in his forehead. <laughs> yeah, his eyes yeah. are bugging out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, I, I the other thing that's of note up to this point is, I, I think it's safe to say that he knows she's a spy when he's hiding yeah. her out, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's he's he knows she's a spy. He knows she's a threat to them. And even though that's the case, he decides to protect her because, I don't know. He's a sucker for a pretty face. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of things. Like, he, it's probably attraction has something to do with it. But I, I do think he cares about her kids, you know, her, her kid brother, kid sister. Like, he cares about them as people, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. So... It's it's a good little moment. It's a good little setup. Yeah, it's a it's the perfect setup for a brewing tragedy that you know something bad is about to happen, but you're just waiting to see how it plays out. Yeah, yeah. So, you ready to move on to the next section? Mm-hmm. Section four. White base continues to make its way towards Gibraltar when it's two hours away. The crew pick up a distress signal from a civilian plane. Bright's not willing to ignore it, so they pick it up and do some quick repairs so the civilians can be on their way. However, unknown to the crew, the civilians are actually undercover Xeon agents sent by Shar to make radio contact with Miharu. After the agents succeed in their mission, Shar's forces launch an attack from the water against White Base. One of the enemy units is a large mobile armor called the Grabro. As explosions rock White Base, Miharu sees the three orphan kids, Kika, Katz, and Letz. 
grabbing a fire extinguisher to try to help the adults put out some fires on the ship, in the ship. Seeing them reminds her of her own little siblings, and she has an attack of conscience. Slugger Law hops in a core fighter while Amro gets ready in the Gundam. Because they're still flying above the water, the Gundam isn't exactly suited for an extended battle, so Kai will pilot the Gunperry, which is an aerial transport vehicle that the Gundam will use as a foothold in the skies. Miharu makes her way to the docking bay, finding Kai, and she insists on joining him in the battle to defend White Base as she regrets being used by Zeon and allowing Zeon to use her. I'd say the highlight of this section was that moment you described where Miharu, you know, after the White Base gets attacked and everything's kind of chaotic, Miharu sees those three kids uh, Mm -hmm. and even though they're just kids, they're taking it upon themselves to help out in whatever way they, they can. And, you know, it's a moment that inspires her, but also puts her to shame knowing that these kids were in this situation. Uh, like, I think a, a couple of things were going on in her mind. One was the idea that these kids in in the given situation decided to, like, nut up and, you know, help <laughs> out. Whereas... She, given her situation, decided to betray her own people, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that. Uh, additionally, there's also the realization that the people that she's betraying, they're not just face faceless entities. There are families on board this vessel, you know? There are kids on board this ves- vessel. Mm-hmm. And so it's like you said, there was an attack of conscience in that moment, and... She she can't do it. She can't keep doing what she's doing. Um, I'd also say that I think another fair contributing factor to acknowledge is, you know, they put her on this ship and then she was supposed to message them or whatever. And what they end up doing, they end up attacking and blowing up the ship, even though she's on it. What loyalty does she owe them at this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Very really. True. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's all sorts of things going on in that moment. But, but yeah, it's played out pretty well. And, you know, watching Kai run off uh, to go help Amaro take care of the, 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 the unit, the mobile unit that's underwater. And, uh, yeah, just her being so insistent that she has to go with them. I, I think it's safe to say that that's uh that's a recipe right there, right? It's a death flag. Yeah. She, she might as well be a red shirt in Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of other little character bits that I also appreciated in this chapter. Uh, one of them was when the white base took on board the, the spies, I mean, they obviously didn't know that that plane was a couple of Xeon agents, but it was more just, uh, even though Bright knew that they were on a mission, he he couldn't find it in him to ignore a distress signal, you know? Now, I, I feel like that's that says something about who he is as a man also. Yeah, yeah. He's, I think he's very much what you would consider... I guess like a Boy Scout or something. <laughs> <But> yeah. 
Yeah, he's he's a very by the book sort of dude, and uh, I think that's something that we see again and again. Where uh, he he's the kind of guy who gives a hundred percent of his loyalty to the people above him, even though they don't clearly deserve it. Yeah, like you could easily imagine an alternate universe where the people above him were as good as he was or as he is, and he would be, you know doing something better than what he's been doing which is essentially like i think we said in a previous episode you described him as this ultimate middle manager type of person yeah where he's just trapped between like these really inexperienced uh soldiers under him and then these really incompetent leaders above him yeah 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 exactly right Mm -hmm. because he he's just a dude who's just trying to do his best given what he's got and they didn't give him much they didn't give him much i think it's fair to say that he's probably got enough self-awareness to know that you know the people above him aren't that great but you know he has, no he has to do yeah he has to do what he has to do because he believes in his code you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly and, and i think that's why he is one of the characters that i do respect yeah out of here you know yeah, totally. I think there's a moment in a later chapter in this book that really exemplifies that as well. So I'll try to remember to bring it up when we get there. But as far as uh, chapter four goes, the other moment that I really liked was when Kai puts two and two together and he realizes that the two civilians that came on board were actually spies because he notices that uh, Miharu was able to get this transmission out and he figures out it was that plane and he, he gets shocked. And like, if you look on page 147, that, that uh, panel on the upper tier where he's just realizing what happened uh, is a pretty good drawing of, of just shock and indignation. And then these next couple pages, he's just racing towards the, the docking bay uh, frantic, you know, he's like telling, telling his comrades to shoot them down because they're spies and everybody's like what are you talking about and he's just yeah. at the very end of page 149 he just calls them idiots <laughs> yeah it's a it's an intense situation which is watching him uh run out there you know yeah and, and definitely just another moment that he can put in his cap because you know, like I've been saying, up to this point, he's just been kind of a jokey character, and just watching him like be the only person who who's in the know and like taking it, putting the weight of the world's on on his shoulder just to try to right that wrong. It's it's heroic in spite of its failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the art on page one forty eight is really well done because I think the way that Yaz uses those speed lines, it he really creates this sense of urgency, you know, and like the yeah. angles that he, he draws when we were seeing Kai run, it, it's, it's really, and just all uh, the panels too. Like yeah, just it's the intense. number of panels is more than what we've been seeing. And it's just, you can feel the, the speed and the urgency of it all, you know, mm-hmm. it's powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's some good stuff. Yeah. All right, moving on to section five. In this action-packed installment, Slegger and Wong 
are flying core fighters in an attempt to take out the amphibious Xeon mobile suits. At this point, I gotta say, man, pour one out for Corporal Wong as our Asian hero dies <laughs> in a fiery explosion in this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> Alas, we hardly knew ye. We just knew you long enough to know your name. Yeah. <laughs> our fellow Chinese brother. <laughs> yeah. Kai sneaks Miharu onto the gun parry, and the Gundam is on board. I also like the attention to detail here as Kai indignantly shouts that the balance will be thrown off with the Gundam lying prone in the gun parry. And even Slugger can't believe what he's seeing when the gun parry launches. It's a hectic, furious battle over the seas, and Amro takes a risk when he jumps off the gun parry to land on top of the Grabro and engage in close quarters combat. Slugger takes out one of the enemy mobile suits, but Kai is having a hard time hitting the other one with the gun with the gun parry's limited number of missiles. To compound things, right when he gets down to his final missile, the firing mechanism jams. There's a manual release on the lower deck near the missile launcher, and Miharu volunteers to go down and trip the safety release. While she's down there, the enemy mobile suit pops up into the targeting reticle and she launches the missile. Unfortunately, the blast causes her to lose her footing, and she's sent flying. She slams her head against a bulkhead before she flies off the ship entirely, and we see her body helplessly ragdoll over the ocean. Amuro manages to defeat the Grabro, and Kai calls for Miharu to return to the cockpit, not yet realizing what's happened. It's a masterfully executed scene transition as everyone returns to white base in the aftermath of the battle. And Kai is helplessly sobbing on the floor over Miharu's death. To Kai, Miharu was precious and irreplaceable. To the rest of the crew, she's a who? Amuro manages to explain to the rest of the crew that she was a stowaway. And the chapter ends with a sad scene of Miharu's spirit saying goodbye to Kai. Yeah, so building up to this point, I've been teasing the idea that this was a character who, from the very start, was going to have some sort of tragic end. And there we go. Mm-hmm. We, we, we finally got into it. I, uh, I have to admit something to you, Drew. Yeah. Um, so this was a scene that you had mentioned to me maybe like a year or two two years before when you read this the first time i remember it was a scene that really affected you and you know it was just one of those things where you were just so moved by it that you wanted to talk about it and i think you didn't really want to give away too much in case i ever read this book but your description of it was so vivid that I did remember it. So when I was reading this volume of the book, I think very early on, I knew that this was what you were describing. So I think in my heart of hearts, I already knew what had happened to the character. (laughs) Dang, I'm shocked you remembered something I told you over a year ago. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy, uh, man. Like sometimes I'll say stuff to you like earlier in the week and then, you know, the next day you'll forget. Yeah. Well, I remember listening to this thing about uh, memory where they were talking about how people who don't have great memory, it's not necessarily that they're forgetful. It's just that 
they kind of pick and choose the things that they want to remember or things that are worth remembering to them. That's interesting so, that you thought that was worth remembering way back then before we even thought about reading this for the podcast. Well, I think it was something that where your enthusiasm for it was contagious enough that I was caught up in it. So I remembered it because of your, you know, just how how into it you were. So, uh, yeah. So when we were reading it, I think very early on, maybe by probably by the end of the first chapter, I was like, oh, I think this is the the, the volume that he was describing to me. <laughs> I infected you with my enthusiasm. It's not a bad thing. Huh? It's, it's well, not dude, the worst thing I could infect you comics. with. It, it's uh, not. It's not the worst thing I could infect you with. It's not an STD. <laughs> <laughs> it is not. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> yeah. But I just thought that that was an anecdote worth mentioning at the at, at the front of this. I was contemplating whether I should say it right at the beginning of our podcast, but I decided to wait until this very moment because mm-hmm. that way it would have its maximum effect. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm totally stunned that you remembered something I said over a year ago. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I do remember things, but... You're, you're starting I, to make me you know, think that I should be more careful about the things I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you probably should. You probably should. <laughs> I need to be careful about the things I say when I'm around Albert. <laughs> yeah. But this was... This is probably the the crux of this first story arc. We We mentioned that this volume was broken up into two major stories, and... The first one was Mehar was centered around Meharu and Kai and just even though the stakes for the rest of White Base and everything that went on was of utmost importance, the the emotional heart of it is really what happens between Meharu and Kai. And to watch it all play out in those final scenes where, you know, Meharu's conscience uh, emboldens her to to want to make up for what she's done as a spy to the point where she goes out here, puts herself in danger, and even though she saves all of them, uh, she ends up sacrificing herself. Like, to be fair, even, even though I remembered what you had told me, Drew, like, I think looking at this volume... I think it's also clear to say that just reading it, you knew that something bad was going to happen to her. We've been saying it this whole time. So when we do finally get here and that happens, it's like, oh, yeah. It, we we didn't really see a way to change the future. And we just knew that something was going to happen. And it did, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that that scene where uh, they they break it down like just sequence by sequence, where Mehru's caught in the wake of the missile launching, and 
just her slamming her head and just watching her body as it just, you know, drifts mm-hmm. off into the endless ocean. That yeah. that entire sequence of events, it's just it's heart wrenching, man. Just watching it play out. It really is. It really is. Yeah. yeah. This this particular story arc is one of my absolute favorites in the entire saga. And for my money, Miharu's death is probably one of the most heart wrenching in the entire Gundam franchise. You know, I'm talking about like every single series that that they've made. This was this is definitely one of the ones that stands out to me the most. And I think it's telling that. This particular chapter not only has color pages at the beginning of it, but also at the end for the scene when they're back at the base and Kai sees her spirit. It's just obvious that he put a lot of that Yasuhiko put a lot of care and thought into presenting the story. And from what I remember, this is a story that he really cared about because in the original run of the anime, in 1979 uh the order of events is actually different um in the story that they presented in the anime because i think i've mentioned this before but in the origin manga yasuhiko actually takes the time to think out the geography of everything and you know he there's a logic to white base's path on earth you know um that's not really present in the original anime because I think in the anime, it just feels like they're going to all these different locations on earth, but there's no rhyme or reason as to like why they're going to uh, America and then uh, England and then South America. Like they're just like zigzagging all over the place and it there's not a whole lot of thought put into it. So in the, in the anime, uh, White Base doesn't actually go to Jabro first, and that that's like a big change from what we've what we read. And um, they actually meet Miharu on the way to Jabro later on. I think it's I think it's flipped around from what we've read. So like all that stuff with like Rambaral happens, and then uh, I can't remember if the Battle of Odessa happens. But I remember they definitely go to uh, they they definitely go to Belfast before they go to Jabro. So I think when they did the manga version of it, and they just went to Jabro without seeing Miharu, people were like, "Oh, I guess they, I guess Yasuhiko cut that out." But clearly, he was just saving it for right. when it would make sense in the in the journey. So in the anime, like. Uh, Mihru's character arc and is is still pretty much the same though, right? It's still pretty much the same. Okay. Yeah, it just takes place earlier in the story. <clears throat> the other thing I remember uh, hearing about is how when they did the compilation movies for First Gundam, so again, the, the anime, the original anime was, I believe, I want to say... 39 or 43 episodes i forget off the top of my head but it was around that number of episodes and uh a few years after that uh they were given the go-ahead to compile the episodes into into movies uh and when they were trying to figure out 
what to cut and what to include in the movies. Uh, this was one of the things that Yasuhiko definitely wanted to keep. Because if you think about it, a lot of those anime compilation movies, not just with Gundam, but with any anime, anytime you're trying to compile a season of, of a series into a movie, it always you always lose so much, right? Like, it's it's hard to do that in a way yeah. where the movie is still cohesive. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's not an easy task. I get it. Because if you're trying to condense all this stuff and uh, streamline it, you know, the you, the initial thing that you made, I'm sure everything that you put in there was put in there for a reason. And then putting yourself in a position to decide what to cut and what to keep and, like, how to re-represent it in a way that still maintains the spirit and essence of uh, what you initially presented mm -hmm. that's a that takes a lot of work yeah it's a big ask because totally even, even with something where let's let's say for example something is like 12 or 13 episodes and you're trying to condense that into a two-hour movie that's yeah. that's pretty hard yeah like, like that ends up being kind of choppy or you know you just end up missing stuff and i don't know if people who didn't watch the tv series will be able to make sense of a movie like that yeah but yeah. that's kind of what they did with Gundam, except they had three movies, but it was like 40 episodes, which is still hard. And yeah. I think if you were to try and optimize uh, those films to condense the story of Gundam into like three movies, you would probably try to focus all the material with stuff that's relevant to Amaro and stuff that's directly relevant to the Federation versus Zeon War. Yeah. So having this story that really doesn't have that much to do with either of those things it's it takes up space you know but he felt strongly enough about it that he fought to include that in the movie too yeah yeah i did want to mention one other thing uh before i forget and i think it's worth mentioning but mm -hmm. the thing about meharu that i thought was uh an interesting uh representation uh for a character was the idea that if this entire story is this epic saga that yazuhiko is telling uh, and kind of his statement on war he really does take it upon himself to show various ways in which war affects everyone right mm -hmm. so you do it's it's not a story that's told purely from the perspective of just the soldiers that are involved or the opposing soldiers or you know it's not purely a story about the military it's really a story about how war affects everybody on multiple levels yeah and for him to tell the story and to introduce these characters to introduce someone like uh miharu and you know over the course of 12 volumes to just introduce these various facets of life that are just affected by the war and just how people have to get by when under under those circumstances it's it's something that i do appreciate i do like taking that extra step and level to to make just a more i guess 
a more realistic, a more thought-provoking uh, a story, you know, something that just mm-hmm. captures... It, it's a more well-rounded story, is what I'm, what I'm saying, you know? Like, yeah. it, you, you can very easily just tell a story that's just about these soldiers are fighting those soldiers, and we're just going to watch this play out. And In fact, I'm pretty sure that's how most war stories or military stories are. It's just... You know, these are the good guys, those are the bad guys, and we're just going to watch, you know, the tactics play out. But this, Yeah, I mean, when you boil it down to that, I think there's a lot of stories that are just, we're going to watch this guy fight that guy, and then this dude's going to win. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, that's kind of about it. It's pretty, it's really reductive, and I'm not even going to say that you can't have good stories that are like that, but I do appreciate that uh, Yasuhiko and Gundam Origin are able to introduce these little side characters to give us a feel for just what the world feels like to give us a statement on just how war affects everyone and everything you know yeah yeah it really adds an extra dimension of emotional complexity absolutely absolutely and um yeah like the the very last couple of pages of this just there it's it's really sad stuff watching kai have this imaginary conversation with miharu like it's on on one level it's maybe everything that you would need to hear in in a moment like that everything that you would need to hear to like console yourself to to make yourself okay with whatever with what's just happened but at the same time the real like I guess sad meta thought is this is all happening in his head, you know, like, yeah, like there's no way to tell if that's really what you would have said. Yeah. You know, like if, if you really think about it, it's just him telling himself what he needs to hear in order to, to process either to process or to feel okay about it. But, you know, in the end there's, there's not really much that you can really, do with that it might make you feel better for a moment but realistically speaking i realistically speaking i wouldn't know if that's really what you would have thought i and and that leaves me feeling kind of hollow yeah yeah because it's like i'm pretty sure she would have wanted to rather be alive yeah yeah right like given the choice between those two things yeah exactly yeah, it's a really beautifully illustrated sequence, too. Uh, I think the watercolors that Yaz uses here, uh, like starting on, on page 219 to the end of the chapter, it's like really evocative, emotive stuff. Just a lot of purples and blues and, and pinks Yeah. as he's having this conversation with her in his mind. And there's no background. It's just these moody colors and their, their figures... Um, you know emoting and then the way it ends uh you know like she says her last line on page 223 and then when you flip the page to 224 now we're outside white base we just get this one page splash of white base flying over the horizon and you still get those pinks and and purples and blues but there's also this uh sunrise it looks like like just 
the hints of yellow over the horizon and it's just mm, man that's beautiful painting man that's that's drawing and painting that really communicates mood and and adds so much to the story i, I like that a lot it's the yeah. stuff that just makes me flip through it uh multiple times just to try and figure out how he did that you know it's yeah the magic of comics yeah the one thing the one final thing that i i think is worth mentioning um about this the end of this particular story arc uh and moving forward is that for the rest of the volume we don't see kai after this like there's some mention of him and un unless i missed it but i don't I don't think we see him after this uh, for the rest of this volume. And uh, they just talk about how this was something that just utterly broke him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it's a heck of a note to end on. Uh, you know, just... We, we do see him later on. Uh, he's oh, he's we? piloting his uh, gun cannon during the Battle of Odessa. Oh, okay, okay. I might have yeah. missed that then. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's on uh, page 401 if you're curious. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. But he's definitely uh, out out of it for a couple chapters, I think. Yeah. We're, I don't know. Yeah, we're about at the halfway point. So he's, he's gone mostly up until 401, like you said. So... Mm -hmm. Up to that point, that's that's you know almost the second half of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's it's pretty it's pretty sad. It's pretty sad, and it's really well done. So yeah, you know, it's it's definitely a high point in terms of uh, what we've read up to so far. Yeah, yeah. One more anecdote that I just remembered from watching. Uh, this Gundam documentary. I think it's still on YouTube. I think it's called the men who the men behind Gundam or the men who made Gundam or something. It's an, an NHK documentary. But from what I remember, there was also an interview with one of the other animators who worked on the series back in 79. And what he was reminiscing about was this scene, because I think he had just seen uh, the the storyboards or something like uh, the director of the show, Yoshiki Tomino and Yasuhiko. I think they had both left the office that day, but they had been talking about this scene, uh, the Miharu scene. Um, and I guess they left the storyboards on somebody's desk. So this animator, after they went home, uh, he went over to the desk to look at what they were talking about. And just uh, as he was looking at it, he said it made him cry. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Just shows that uh, they got the chops, man. Mm -hmm. They got it. They know how to tell a story that'll, uh, that'll just wreck you. That's right. All right, let's move on to the next chapter, section six. This one's another action-packed installment. It seems that Shar is back in his red Zaku and drawing out Federation mobile suits in a land battle on what I believe is somewhere near Gibraltar. Shar's been decimating gym after gym. A Federation general that nobody seems to respect tries to hold what one white base crew member calls a pep rally at dawn 
and orders White Base to hunt down the Zaku as punishment for not making it to Gibraltar in time for the big battle. Bright has Slugger lead a squad, but they're all defeated, and it seems only Slugger survives. Amuro heads out in the Gundam, and it's a big one-on-one battle between him and Shar. Perhaps the most notable plot development here is that Shar shouts at Amuro during their battle and asks, Are you a new type? I'm not actually clear on whether this was over their comms or if Amuro actually heard Shar's voice in his head. It feels like there's a bit of ambiguity here. Anyway, Amuro manages to get the upper hand in this battle using his beam saber to slice off the Zaku's head, but Shar himself makes a clean getaway. He tells his men that he has no intention to be actively fighting in the upcoming battle at Odessa. Instead, he wants to watch the battle from afar and see, and I quote, just how good General Makaveh really is. <clears throat> the outcome, he reasons, will allow him to watch Giran and Cassilia maneuver back in Zeon. This is all still just more political theater to him. Any thoughts on this chapter, Albert? I feel like my main thought here is that this chapter has some of the most amazing mobile suit drawings and battle choreography that we've seen yet. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, that sequence where Shar escapes his Zaku, that's probably one of the most unrealistic things that we've seen too, because he's <laughs> jumping off his uh, burning suit, his burning mobile suit, and and landing on the ship that's flying right below him. That I don't know about that. <laughs> it's like one of those uh, hover platforms or something, too. It's not even like a ship, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah. I, I think... Oh, no, I guess... Okay, from the angle, it looks like it's just one of those... Uh, yeah, like a surfboard or something. But I guess you're right. It is a ship. Like an actual ship. Mm-hmm. Well, but that's that's more of that uh, Char just being uh, uh, a quote-unquote Mary Sue, right? <laughs> just... He just being this character who's just so cool. He's just, just so, so awesome powerful. at everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do think the drama is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty high here. It's because I think it's fair to say that this is a story that has. It's it's a three-way battle is essentially what it is, right? Because you do have, well, maybe it's more than three, but at its core, you have Zeon and the Federation, and then really the the the, the outlier or the third un, unknown uh, element is Shar, right? He's he's a wild card. He we don't know <laughs> whose side he's on. He's his own man. Is he a friend or foe? Both. Who knows? <laughs> right? Dude, I feel like you should just cut a wrestling promo. <laughs> but that's what people love about him. I'm 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 convinced that that's why people love him or 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 characters like him where it's like you know, he serves no man. He is his own master. You might think that he's working for you, but he only serves you to his own ends. He he can't be tamed. He's a wild stallion. <laughs> you like that? That's pretty funny, man. You should definitely be a wrestling manager. You fit right Ooh, in with the WWE. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Snap into a Slim Jim. Can you dig it? 
What are you going to do, brother? <laughs> when Hulkamander runs all over you, when do you get these 22-inch pythons? <laughs> and a hunk of hunk of burning love. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> anyways, there's the personal grudge that Char has with uh, Amaro. I think there's even a point where I'm not sure it's in this chapter or in one of the later ones where he's talking to a subordinate and he mentions that his grudge against Amuro comes purely from a place of ego. It's not practical at all. It's not about, you know, what about him beating Amuro to attain his goals. He's beating Amuro because Amuro made him feel lesser. He's yeah. he's found in Amuro uh, an adversary that he wants to beat. Exactly. To make himself like everybody feel else about so far that Char has fought has just been chopped liver, you know? Like he, yeah. he's killed They're dumb odds. Exactly. Exactly. Everybody that's tried to go up against Char doesn't survive long. And Amro's the only one who has survived him. It really yeah. is just this prideful thing. Yeah. So amidst this entire uh war where the fate of the known universe is uh, is on the table like there's still room for this petty grudge (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) totally man yeah and and do do you respect him for the pettiness i kind of do yeah yeah sure pettiness (laughs) is one of my fundamental uh core principles so why not (laughs) (laughs) it's what i've built my life on yeah. <laughs> so what what more what more can i expect from a character yeah what more can he do to satisfy my personal pleasures than to be just the pettiest dick in the world <laughs> but but yeah so this this is sort of the i think for a while it seems like it's the culmination because there's even talk when they're facing off with each other where Shar is just like, this is where it's going to end right here, right now, me and you, you know? Yeah. But it clearly doesn't end there. Yeah. It's really engaging, um, you know, just what's, what's it called? Bragadaccio between these two characters as they face off. And then, you know, the story has to go on. They, they, they end up going back to, they have their fight. Char is wounded and they go back to their corners and it it becomes this thing where it's like, uh, I know I said that was going to be the last time, but next time there will come a reckoning. There will come a reckoning. I will rise from the ashes like (laughs) Phoenix. Oh yeah. You better believe it. (laughs) Yeah. I really like the art in this, in this chapter. It's just, so well drawn all of the mobile suit action just looks incredible like from the very beginning the opening color pages when when the gyms are hunting him at night and char just messes them up like all of that just looks excellent and then during the battle when when amro's out in the gundam hunting him in the in the rubble and the hills and stuff like the the sh- full body shots that we get of Yaz drawing the Gundam and the Zaku are just really, really fun to look at. Like I'm thinking on page 250 when the Gundam is just looking around. It's such a simple drawing, but 
I don't know, man. There's just something about it that just does it for me. And then uh, yeah. on page 252 with Shar Zaku crouched on top of a mountain and you just he's just backlit the way that uh, the shadows are drawn on him. That's some really good shading, man. It, it just makes him look intimidating. And then on page 250, what is this? 253, we get these panels of Shar in his cockpit and he just has this poop eating grin on three straight panels. It's, it's, it's amazing. Like that's his trademark expression. This, yeah. this all knowing grin thinking that no matter what the situation is, he's always got the upper hand. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. I, and I will say that I mentioned earlier that this, this volume is one where the Federation gets a couple of good licks in uh, in spite of the fact that the previous volumes were just ones where they, you know, if they're lucky, they break even. Yeah. Exactly. So this was a moment where, you know, Amaro and I guess by proxy, the Federation get a good one in, you know? So Shar yeah. manages to beat up, no, beat up's generous. He manages to kill a bunch of these uh, Federation mobile suits and he thinks he's gonna finally put a put an end to this between him and Amuro, and to watch Amuro like beat him, like you know what? This is my pettiness coming out, but for all the people that are <laughs> Char fans, that gave me joy. <laughs> that just gave me a straight <laughs> rager. <laughs> you liked it when Amuro cut his head off when the Gundam cut off the Zaku's head. I loved it when he cut off the Zaku's head and he made Char flee. And, you know, and he made Char, who just moments earlier said, this is the final battle between us. He made him eat that and go back to his corner and (laughs) go, maybe next time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so it makes me just think of all those people that look at Char and just, you know, or just in love with the dude and just, uh, you know, praising him and even going so far as to look at the Zeons as the heroes of the story because of it. Like, I'm glad that they felt dejected in that moment. I hope <laughs> they feel, felt dejected in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> you are the true petty king. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, next chapter, section? Section 7. We start here with an almost pastoral scene as White Base flies over Turkey, and Amro, Fraubo, and the orphan kids admire the landscape below them. We get a brief little history lesson about the caves they're flying over, which I think tracks with Yasuhiko's interests in world history. Amro has a conversation with Master Sergeant Eter, who survived the fight against Shar in the previous chapter with some injuries. And Eter gives Amro his respect. Slugger Law, who was also injured in the last battle, but not badly enough to keep him out of action, gets in a core booster for a recon mission with Sela in a core fighter as his wingman. The ship is in an area with high Minofsky particle density, and Bright doesn't want to take any chances. The recon is going well until Slugger and Sela run into at least eight enemy fighters. They manage to destroy these outdated fighters, but Sela's core fighter takes some damage, and she's forced to splash down. Interestingly, 
Mirai gets a premonition at that moment and recommends speeding up in white base to meet their recon fighters sooner. Sela leaves her downed fighter and makes her way to some rocks ashore, just in time to witness a squad of Xeon mobile suits racing past her. The two surviving black Tristars are leading a squad of doms in the direction of white base. The chapter ends with Slegger returning to white base for a resupply, and Fraubo, who is now in Sela's usual position as communications officer, giving Amro the order to head out in the Gundam to help Sela. Yeah, man. It's more a uh, build-up. Uh, I know that the first section of it, we talked about it as being one where um, you know, the emotional core was what was at the center there, but I think in this second section, we really jump into the action and the, the I guess the the tactical stuff of it all you know mm-hmm. so we're we're seeing that all play out they're really ratcheting up the tension because we're watching as uh they're trying to proceed with their mission and then you know uh Sela gets shot down and it puts them in a position where they're going to have to expose themselves they're going to have to choose to either save her uh and risk putting themselves in danger and you know whatever limited supplies that they have or leaving her behind and you know them being the heroes of the story they got to go get her right yeah exactly yeah. it doesn't yeah, even it's... seem like they consider it an option just to leave her where she lands yeah yeah i mean, I mean they obviously knew she was alive because slugger saw her es- escape so it, totally. it would have been pretty messed up to just be like eh, <laughs> we'll come back for her on the way back <laughs> she can walk yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's it's a perfect storm that's brewing because you've got the remaining black t- tri-stars who've got a grudge against uh amaro you've got the fact that you know they're they're running low on supplies they've they've been in a com- couple of uh altercations already so you know it it's just the tension is ratcheted up at this point, or continuing to ratchet up at this point. So mm-hmm. we're we're gonna see we're gonna see how this all plays out, man. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So some yeah. of the artwork in the beginning of the chapter is pretty great too. Again, like the painted pages, he always does a good job with those, man. Like the way that even when he's just painting a simple landscape, it's it's just fun to look at, man. Like just yeah. his, the way he draws nature. I'm just thinking about the very first page, the the page that has the section seven on it, and you just see these mountains and and crags in the distance and the horizon. The way he just paints the sky, it's it just looks good, man. It it appeals to my senses. Yeah, and I do think that the coloring does a lot in these early uh in this in the early couple of pages of this che- uh, section because you know. Most of the book being black and white, uh, it just pops out at you. And just using these oranges, the these uh, almost like pastel sort of uh, color palette, it's it really is pleasant. Mm-hmm. They introduced that one uh, cadet early on in the chapter. He's the one who's who's all bandaged up. What was his name? Etor. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's spelled E T U R. Yeah. Master and Sergeant Etor. 
I don't or really tour. I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know too much about him, but he, you know, he does have quite a moment where he's talking with Amuro right there, and yeah. just kind of, I guess, waxing poetic about what it means to be a soldier. Yeah, you know. And I do think that that was kind of cool stuff where he's talking to Amuro and he's saying like, you're you're a commissioned officer. You're like high ranking, but you still wear this uniform of like, you know, like a peon, essentially. Like, why do you do that? Yeah, (laughs) it's it's. I don't know. It's an interesting moment amongst soldiers. And this dude is. I guess he's a pretty stark contrast to everybody else just because, yeah, he, he's so beaten up, uh, you know, from from all the other stuff that he's done already for mm-hmm. for the Federation. But I just thought he'd be an important character to mention because uh, he does show up again later on in the story. So, you know, it yeah. was worth uh, bringing him up just for that. Yeah. He's yeah. an experienced soldier that was introduced uh, right around the time when Slugger was introduced. I think that was the very beginning of Volume 5, like right before the flashbacks started. We get like a few pages of the new crew members joining White Base, and those guys are all like experienced soldiers. Yeah, and they're so, not presented in a way that other like leadership soldiers are where... They're just kind of goofy or whatever. Like, these guys are, you know, kind of noble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's interesting, too, to see him in the scene in this chapter because it, even though he's he really is just this background character, him having these couple of pages goes a pretty long way to humanize him. Yeah. You know, it just goes to show that when you're telling a story with a vast amount of characters, you don't always have to have people have a lot of scenes but whatever yeah. scenes that they do have if you if you do them well enough they go a pretty long way to giving that character uh some weight behind yeah them you know it's it's really good stuff absolutely like you know panels aren't something that you have in unlimited supply like space and time to tell your story uh, is a valuable resource that people don't necessarily always think about or realize and it's just whatever you do with what you have it it should be surgically precise in how you use it right Mm -hmm. so if there's a point that he wants to drive home at a, a given time uh you know using one particular character even if it's for a moment to give him that moment to shine uh you're right it goes a long way towards adding more um just degrees of reality to this world you know Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. it's like you have all these characters but the only people that ever have good lines or profound thoughts are just the same one or two characters (laughs) maybe three like it's it's maybe that's an impulse that a lot of people have but I, i don't know i don't i don't I don't think it's the best use of uh, your characters. Yeah, exactly. When you have a big cast, you can be economical with your storytelling. Exactly. With the amount of scenes that you give people. But exactly. it's just that when you when you do give somebody a scene, you should make it worth something, you know? 
Exactly, exactly. Like, you tell a Batman story, and all you want is Batman to always just be the smartest guy in the room, always saying the smartest thing. Like, he can do no wrong, blah, blah, blah. And, like, I, don't get me wrong, I love Batman, but it's like, he shouldn't be great at the expense of everybody else looking stupid. Like, we can, we can mm-hmm. have some degree of complexity to people. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. Yeah. You want to move Any on other to the thoughts next? on this chapter? Okay, yeah, we can move on. Yeah. Section 8. This is another chapter that's mostly all action. This time, when the Gundam launches, it's riding the back of Slugger's core booster, kind of like a sled. They head back to where Sela's core fighter crashed, but in, in doing so, they attract the attention of the contingent of Doms who give chase. A massive fight breaks out, but Amro overcomes their numbers and destroys the entire enemy force, including the last two remaining black Tri-Stars. Even Bright, Slugger, and the rest of the white base crew are impressed, and probably even a bit intimidated at how conclusively Amro destroyed his foes. White base can continue on to Odessa. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the Xeon base, General Makave reprimands his underlings, telling them not to panic at the loss of the two companies of Doms and that he has a plan. So, yeah, that's mostly about it, this chapter. There's a lot of sweet, sweet mecha action here. Yeah. Again, just really fantastic artwork that drives home how ferocious Amro has become in the Gundam. Yeah. I do think that, again, the tension is built up pretty high here because they, I think, I might be interpreting this wrong, but I feel like they, the Xeon um, uh, Gundams, or not Gundams, Mobile uh, Mobile Suits, were aware that Sela was down there. So it was essentially a trap for him, right? I don't know if they knew Sela or that a person was there, but they knew that there was a downed fighter. So maybe they thought that there was somebody who survived. And, you know, if they just waited, then perhaps the uh, Federation would come for a pickup. But then again, I think what also triggers the fight is that uh, Slugger and Amro are heading towards Sela. And as they're flying overhead, the enemy sees them. Right, right. Well, it's also, yeah, but regardless, it's it's a pretty awesome battle and a, a conclusion to Amuro's, I guess, grudge with the, the Tri-Stars, right? Because mm-hmm. at this point, they've they've both got grievances against one another. And uh, this was something that was established, like, what, three, four volumes back now at this point? Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. It was before the flashback arc. Yeah, so this, you know, this... This was the moment that we see that come to a culminate to its culmination. Um, yeah, it, it's a good end to it. Uh, it it takes when reading this, it took me back to that flashback scene where the Tri Stars uh, engaged all those mobile suits early on in the war, and mm-hmm. you know the Federation was just throwing a bunch of suits at them. Oh yeah, and then that's that's what I flashed back to when I was reading this because in that moment, like. Shar and the Tri-Stars just massacred those guys. Yeah. You know? So this this was another scene that sort of mirrors that scene, but it's the Federation's turn this this time, and it's their turn to get a win in. And just watching Amuro, you know, 
just kill them all. <laughs> not just the men, but the women and the children, too. They're he like animals. Them. So I slaughtered them like animals. <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> exactly. But to see that finally play out, to, to, to get that moment avenged, that was... That was pretty sweet for me, you know. I like I remember reading that scene uh in the previous volumes and it was it was a pretty despicable way for those guys to go out, you know. So yeah. for Amaro to be the one to like just mess all these guys up, it was like good good let them let them eat that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And the artwork is Again, really incredible in this one. The the way that Yaz choreographs all the action, it's pretty frenetic stuff. Yeah. But he always he always gives all of the mobile suits the appropriate amount of weight. So it, it still looks like these are heavy machines that are that are uh, leaping and and swinging beam sabers and whatnot. There's always this sense of heaviness behind or a sense of yeah just a sense of weight behind all these machines yeah yeah like i'll be honest i was uh reading this on a treadmill while i was running <laughs> there are times when i was looking at this where i didn't have the the luxury to like really get a close look at what i was looking at because you know i'm basically bouncing up and down <laughs> while i'm reading it <laughs> So there were times where I was like, I'm not entirely sure what I'm looking at, but the general gist of it was still, you know, pretty cool to look at. You know, the yeah. the parts that I was able to make out were were satisfying. <laughs> I just imagine you on this treadmill where if you slow down for even a moment, the treadmill's just yeah. going to send you flying off. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So when I read these comics, there's always... I'm always fully aware of the fact that at any second I can eat it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a nice page on 360 when White Base is flying over the battle scene and they just you just see a shot of all the smoke from a distance and everybody's like, "Dang, can't believe yeah. he did that." <laughs> and I just love what they say. He's fine. He won big time. Yeah. <laughs> like it's if you think about it a certain way like just the way that they show the scene where everyone's staring out the window and they're just kind of in shock and awe and then the the panel right beneath that you don't even see them anymore you just hear you just see like the front of the ship and then uh there's a, this empty space and you see the text and it's just like you can just imagine that being just silent horror, you know? Yeah. It's like, they're impressed, but what did I just watch? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty scary. <laughs> did you have any thoughts about the, uh, Mc, uh, what's his name, Makuya and, and his scene? I think his name is pronounced Makave, but I've also oh, Makave. heard people say Makuve. So uh, okay. you can call him whatever you want, dude. <laughs> what did you call him? Makwe? I yeah, I I I couldn't find his name, so I just remembered that it started with Am. Yeah, and it has an apostrophe and a Q. Yeah. It's a pretty unusual name, man. Gundam always has weird names. They they always come up with strange names. 
it was too much work for me <laughs> to remember. Uh, yeah, I mean, his yeah. appearance at the end of the chapter here is just preening arrogance. We see, yeah. we saw him in previous, uh, previous volumes too, and he was always just coming off as this guy who probably thinks he's really smart, and maybe maybe he <clears throat> is smart, but maybe he's not quite as smart as he thinks he is. Yeah. From what I remember in the previous sections, he was approached by uh, Degwin's daughter. Yeah, Cassilia. Yeah. She, she had him in charge of the Earth forces. Yeah, and she basically put him in charge because, one, he he was kind of an Earth specialist. He, I guess... He loved Earth the... culture, man. He, he was like an Earth version <laughs> of a weeb. Exactly. He was like, I love Earth stuff. You know, I, I I eat burgers all the time, so I know everything about Earth, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think there was even a line or, or a scene where he basically implied that he knows more about Earth culture than Earthnoids themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's that idea that, like, I actually, I actually appreciate Earth culture. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know what they have. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but it's, it sort of reminds me of, uh, what you were saying about Thrawn uh, from Star Wars, where he's a guy who has this understanding of Earth culture, but he uses that understanding to weaponize it in a way to be able to put himself in the shoes of his enemies, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, Thrawn is definitely smarter and not as prideful as Makave. I don't think Makave uses his knowledge of Earth to help him in a tactical sense. I think yeah. he he's he really is just like a weeb where he loves this culture and thinks that he knows more than people who live on Earth. <laughs> and and it just makes him feel superior because he knows that stuff. Right, right. Okay. Um I was also going to say that he, one of the reasons that uh, Cassilia like handpicked him was, I think there was, was a, a risk. Warmonger. Yeah, exactly. There was a risk that anybody that they put there would could potentially try to make peace with the Earthnoids, right? Mm-hmm. But him and Cassilia, they saw eye to eye with each other in terms of with the ultimate goal, which was, you know, complete and total utter conquest. Yeah. Yeah. So. He's not a good person. He's not. He's not. I ain't got no real respect for him. You ready to move on? Yeah. Section nine. Again, I just got to point out the opening page of this chapter is another amazing and gorgeous watercolor painting of the landscape. Is so beautiful to look at. Anyway, the Battle of Odessa is in full swing. Revel and the Federation are engaged in a heavy ground battle against Makave and Zeon. We see all sorts of tanks and cannon ships exchanging fire. Both sides have air support as well, and mobile suits are entering the fray. At one point, we see Zeon dropships unleash Zaku's, which parachute down. Explosions are going off everywhere, and gunfire is pouring in from every angle. People are dying left and right. On White Base, 
Bright explains that their duty is to escort and protect General Revel's flagship. Slugger points out what a dumb idea that is, because White Base would essentially be advertising Revel's location to the enemy. Bright says he sees Slugger's point, but orders are orders, even if nobody is happy with them. Revel, on his flagship, converses with other high-ranking Federation leaders and Lieutenant General Elran muses that future war historians might view this battle as the Austerlitz of the universal century, but Revel says it's more like Tsushima. Makve gets a transmission from Giran Zabi, essentially promising him rewards for winning the battle, but if he can't win, he'd better be dead. The battle rages and the Federation feel confident that Makve is playing right into their hands. Amro gets himself ready to launch in the Gundam. Thoughts on this chapter, Albert? Yeah, it's uh, it's just more ratcheting up of the tension of everything that's going on. All the pieces are falling into place. We're, we're watching as... Uh, you know, forces are beginning to rally for whatever big conflict is going to happen. And, you know, we as the reader just know that whatever happens, it's going to be a turning point, you know, win or lose, right? Yep. So it's, uh, I don't think I really have much to say in terms of, like, what's going on here, because it really is uh, just a lot of, like, action set pieces. Uh, playing out and just mm-hmm. uh, tactical uh, watching tactically as um, you know moves are being made and uh, just ratcheting up uh, the sense of tension and excitement as we you know prepare to enter the final phase of this operation this particular operation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah I don't know yeah. did you have anything I do have several thoughts, actually. Uh, First of all, I do want to mention that there's this sequence at the end of this chapter where, seemingly out of nowhere, a poem is overlaid over images of Zakus and Jims and tanks killing each other. And the words are actually the lyrics to a song called Ai Senshi, or Soldiers of Sorrow, from the second Mobile Suit Gundam movie. And it's one of the most iconic songs in the entire franchise. So I think that's probably why it's fitting to see those lyrics overlaid in this scene. Because it's one of those things where you have this upbeat 80s piano-driven pop song. But it's got lyrics about soldiers staining the ground with their blood and dying for their loved ones. And what's the point of it all? Yeah. You know, it's, it's like a total anime a mecha anime thing that they established there that I, I think probably other anime have also done in the decades since. But yeah, it, it works in the comic too, just having those lyrics there. I think even if you don't know that it's a reference to a famous Gundam song, I think it still works just as this kind of a poetic moment, even though it's a lot of uh, death and destruction but the fact that it's in the color pages, it 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 works, man. It works for me. Nice, nice. A couple <clears throat> other things that stood out were those references 
I mentioned the references to the Battle of Austerlitz and the Battle of Tsushima. I thought those were pretty interesting. And I, I can't remember if those lines of dialogue are in the original anime, but I do think it points to Yaz's personal interest in world history. So I actually looked up what those battles were. You know anything about those battles, Albert? No. I uh yeah, I got nothing. Okay. So I'm just going to like briefly summarize what I learned. So Austerlitz was also known as the Battle of the Three Emperors, and it was during the Napoleonic Wars and took place in the Austrian Empire. And there's a whole lot of stuff written about it. Even if you just go on the Wikipedia entry, there's a bunch of stuff in that entry. But from what I can see, in short, it was an example of Napoleon's military genius as he basically had his forces feign great weakness in order to lure in the Russian and Austrian forces, which ended up leading to disaster for them. And he ended up uh, killing and capturing a whole bunch of the enemy forces. And um, one thing I read on the Wikipedia entry, uh, I don't know. I think it's something that scholars debate over, but some people think that uh, this battle actually gave napoleon like this inflated sense of his own ego like after he did this he thought he could do anything you know because yeah. it was such a such a remarkable victory based on his battle plans and strategies and then the the battle of tsushima on the other hand that was history's first and only decisive naval battle fought between modern steel battleship fleets Japan defeated Russia, and according to Wikipedia, the Battle of Tsushima conclusively demonstrated that battleship speed and big guns with longer ranges were more advantageous in naval battles than mixed batteries of different sizes. So, yeah, I can see uh, why both of those allusions were made in this chapter, because it's like the Federation, uh, or the way that this battle is playing out, both both sides have these gigantic flagships, even though they're not naval ships, they're like monstrous tanks that are, they look like the size of buildings or something. And they have these gigantic cannons and they're just shooting at each other from long range. I could, I could see why they would mention the battle of Tsushima here. Yeah. And as for Astrolitz, it's like that whole idea of, of the Federation thinking that they have the bag, they have their enemies where they want them, you know, thinking yeah. that they've lured them into this, into their hands. Actually, now that you mention it, the battle of Tsushima does sound familiar to me. Like if it's the battle that I think it is, uh, I think it's mm -hmm. the, it's, it's basically the battle that established the Japanese as a global power. Like it yeah. was the first time in history that, an Asian nation had defeated, uh, like a you know, I guess Occidental, an Occidental power. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This was uh like nineteen, nineteen oh five. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was like a really decisive victory. Yeah, because the the admiral of the Japanese fleet, I think he had already had experience fighting, uh other fleets like i think i'm pretty sure it was other russian fleets and he had he had beaten them back too but then in this battle uh like it was such a sound victory that 
it it proved something about how uh, naval warfare worked because yeah. it wasn't because like people were building battleships that had all these different size guns like different size cannons. I think the idea at the time was that future naval warfare was going to mean that you got to construct ships that are fast on the water so that you can like move in close to the enemy, blast them from short range, and then keep on moving and still be so fast that they can't hit you with their guns. But then this battle just showed if you have the biggest ship with the biggest guns and you have long range, you have a way better chance of winning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it does feel like it reminds me of the 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 Napoleon story that you were telling uh, that you just mentioned earlier because um, I think winning that war it really did establish Japan as a, a a global superpower at that time, but it also ended up like dictating a lot of just how their culture would end up moving forward. Uh, you know, just them becoming incredibly overconfident and uh militarizing heavily and aggressive exactly yeah so yeah yeah i mean even by the time we get to world war ii they had pretty big pride in their navy yeah yeah you ready to move on to section 10 or did you have something else you wanted to mention i guess the only other thing is that i did think in the back of my mind this week, as we were reading this, there was something strange about it because it's the Battle of Odessa, and there's an actual war in Ukraine going on right now. Yeah, I was gonna then, uh, mention. Yeah, you were that. telling me earlier this week. You you sent me this uh, news video about this report about the war and how the real war in Ukraine and how these Russian tanks have a design flaw that has made them quite susceptible to destruction because their ammunition can catch on fire. Yeah. So. The way that the tanks are built is they were really trying to maximize the efficiency of the space. And uh, so the the way that Russian tanks are built are that the armor is primarily built on the sides and the front because they're accustomed to thinking that the attacks are going to come from the ground where you're just going to get shot by other tanks or by RPGs or something, right? So all of the deflection mechanisms and the armor are all around the sides of the tanks. But the I guess the thing that uh, Americans and European uh, and the West basically figured out was if you they developed these RPGs uh, or these uh, I forget what their the actual name for them is, but the the rockets that they developed actually, fly outward and then up and dive bomb on top of these tanks because the top of the tanks aren't armored. So not only do these tanks penetrate them at the weakest point, which is the top of the tank, but once the once the rocket uh, penetrates the top of the tank, it ignites all of the ammunition that is w- within the tank because... Again, the way that they designed the tank, they designed it to be as efficient. You know, they designed it in a way that they thought would be the most efficient way to to have it, which was to put people essentially sitting on top of the the ammo for the tank. Mm-hmm. But with these rockets coming down and penetrating the tanks, it basically ignites all the ammunition 
and they just cook from the inside out. And uh, it's it's been really effective in, in Ukraine. But watching that uh, news report, it it really did make me just think of what what was being said about warfare in uh, in Gundam, which is you know just how uh, technology and tactics, the combination of these things, uh, is really what wins wars. Is uh, your ability to uh, essentially be uh, what's the word? It's 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 an army's ability to be flexible and to innovate on the spot versus uh, an arm an army's inability to to be flexible to those changes, right? Mm-hmm. So as a result, like what we're seeing is uh, you know clearly the army that is the most creative about how it fights its battles is the one that's going to do the most damage, even under circumstances where the opposing force has a lot more resources. And, and like, it was just interesting to see that news report about Russia and Ukraine, because yeah, even though it's not necessarily a war where we can say that any one side is winning or losing, I think at least in terms of optics, it's fair to say that Russia is not winning and because they have the larger force and, you know, more resources, the fact that they're not winning is in its own way a sign that they're losing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. makes sense. So yeah. yeah. And then yeah, in this in this manga, in this chapter specifically, there's an abundant use of tanks and there's a lot of drawings of destroyed tank husks. Yeah. And it, it was strange to see because I had watched that video you sent me where they actually, the reporter uh, went to these, some of the destroyed tanks, these destroyed Russian tanks. And, you know, we got little close-ups of them. We didn't see anything like gruesome inside. They didn't go that graphic, but like you could easily imagine, uh, you know, people burning up and getting vaporized by the explosion in the tank and yeah it's it's pretty strange to think that the comic that we were reading this week uh also was about a tank war in ukraine yeah 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 in fact odessa is one of the the contested points in 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 the in that theater right now um yeah so it, it's a it's a harsh reality check yeah yeah i don't know how to transition from that to the next chapter <laughs> so there's no smooth way to do it i'll just dive right into section 10 let's go white bases mobile suits enter the battle but sergeant eater gets killed pretty quickly The other Federation units aren't too impressed to see outdated models like Kai's gun cannon in the field. Makovey prepares to have a couple of his soldiers fly a plane equipped with a nuclear warhead in order to destroy Revel's flagship. Gives them a little speech referencing the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, which was supposed to ban war, and points out how shortly after that agreement was signed, World War II broke out. 
Words and pledges are meaningless because the destructive will of human nature always wins. He compares that situation to the one they now face. As we saw in the flashback arc that Makave himself helped negotiate the Antarctic Treaty early on in the war. And that treaty included the banning of nukes. But now he's commanding his men to drop a nuke on the enemy. Amuro launches in the Gundam and gets a new type flash in one of the most unusual panels of the entire series so far. We get a two-page splash of Amuro sensing the evil, and in his mind's eye, he sees a demonic dragon-like creature clutching a pair of warheads. I think in context, it's quite a fascinating commentary on nuclear weapons. On Revel's flagship, we see that Elran is chomping at the bit to get off the ship and lead a pincer attack. It's uncharacteristic behavior, and Revel realizes that he's a traitor <laughs> who has been feeding the enemy intel leaks. Thoughts, Albert? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how you mentioned that one tidbit about how he gave that speech, and he was talking about how the nature of humans is just towards is one that's aimed towards violence and, and conflict. And he talks about how, you know, World War One at the time was one of the most devastating wars that the planet had ever experienced. And the point of that treaty was to make sure that no war would ever happen again. And all it did was make it so that the conditions would be bad enough so that World War Two, a substantially worse war would happen and it's it's interesting that his takeaway from that was that you know people go to war and if we try to do anything to like restrict that all it does is going to make us war even more <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> that's quite some logic it it is but there's also I don't know, like maybe there's uh, an insane reason to it that almost makes sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think I, no, I don't agree with it. But at the same time, it's like, I, I guess I can see where he's coming from and what he's trying to say. Like, I, I don't think that the response is to, to just have us do like the purge equivalent of war, which is, you know, once... Once every year, we're just going to have a world war. And then when that's over, once we've gotten it out of our system, we can go back to just living in peace the rest of the time. Like, I really don't think that that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. He even gives a speech to those pilots where he, he tells them that the, the people who piloted the Enola Gay ended up becoming heroes. So... You know, don't even worry. Don't feel guilty about using a nuke. Yeah. Well, I might have been misunderstanding that, but later on, when uh, when they drop it, wasn't? Oh, I, I think I think the implication was that he tricked those guys because they weren't aware that they were supposed to die with the bomb, were they? I think that, that was, was implied because. Because uh, one of the pilots, while they're in the air, he mentions, wasn't wasn't it from really high up when the Enola Gay dropped her bomb and we're flying so low? And it just makes them question, yeah. like, 
how is a slow plane like ours gonna get away from this <laughs> yeah and the other guy yeah. has no response yeah <laughs> i mean but that's just another well okay anyways uh, I, I think that's in the next chapter right okay anyways yeah yeah but yeah so just to see all this play out yeah i i don't know did you have any other thoughts i think what i mentioned about the scene where amuro gets this image in his head of this like demon thing holding nukes i feel like Uh man that is so fascinating it's just so interesting to me to think that that's how Yaz decided to depict this whole scene. Like, he doesn't do a lot of double-page splashes generally. I can't even think of the last time we saw a double-page splash. Yeah. But for for him to use one here, it really feels like he's saying something about nuclear bombs. It's like... He, I think that's an uh, accurate takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> like, if it, anyone... It definitely feels like something that you would only see from a Japanese comic, you know? Like, I don't... I can't think of an American action comic where something like this is... There's just, like, so much weight behind the the threat and the evil of it. You know, like, it's, it's very explicit here where... where there's no question that the usage of nuclear bombs is evil. Like he flat out spells it out on page 422 on the double page splash. Whereas yeah, I, I feel yeah. like when you read an American war comic, there's always that's that kind of ambiguity, right? Like it's it's saying that yeah, it's it sucks to that people have to die, but we had to use the bomb once so that or twice so that we wouldn't have yeah. to use it again or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like it was uh, the only I'm way to end sure the war those quickly. Cases, the number made a difference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the type of thing that you can just kind of sweep under the rug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I was going to ask one other thing though. So you asked me earlier about Revel. And like what I thought of him, mm-hmm. but in this scene, he, I think he shows quite a bit of like mental acuity. I don't know what you thought of that uh, in that moment right there, or like, does was that a moment that reflected well on him in your opinion, or or? Yeah, I think that's a win for Revo. It, it's something that gives him. It... He ain't a dummy. Exactly, exactly. Like he might he might be kind of a dummy, but this other guy was a bigger dummy. Yeah. <laughs> and and sometimes all that matters is not being the absolute worst, you know? Yeah. Like maybe it's not maybe being he's the not, dumbest dummy. <laughs> exactly. Maybe he's not the best general, but at least he's better than this guy. Yeah. At least he's not he a traitor. He was good when it counted. He was yeah. good when he counted. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, and like you okay. said, for him to have the mental acuity and the power of observation, even though there's a battle uh, attracting his attention, for him to dis- to realize that this dude's uncharacteristic behavior just made him super suspicious, that that's a pretty good twist, I think. It, yeah. It gives us 
again, it's just a little added dimension to the character of Revel because it would it's far too easy to to simply take Kai's stance where this guy is just an idiot who lost the biggest battle of the war and now he he's in charge and we have to throw our lives away for this idiot. Like, I can't say it, like, fully redeems him, but it it shows that, in some way, he's still just also a guy who's trying to do his best. Maybe he's not, maybe his best isn't always good enough, but at least he's not a traitor, man. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a segue into the question that I have to ask, which is, what what are your overall thoughts of him? then like you know seeing as how you proposed that question earlier I, I i'm curious to to know what your thoughts on the on him are i don't think i personally have too much love for him i think oh. i recognize that he was able to do some decent things and i guess there is a level of complexity to the whole situation uh going back to what we discussed earlier about how after he uh, returned back to the Federation from being a POW. He encouraged the Federation to continue the war and try to inspire them uh, and told them that Zeon was exhausted and didn't have enough troops or supplies to fight a long protracted battle. Like it's that that choice is complex because it goes back to that idea of is it better to just surrender and hopefully completely end the bloodshed or is it better to keep on fighting know that more people are going to die but if we win the i guess the reward for winning outweighs the lives that will have to be sacrificed like that that's obviously a complex moral question but um just looking at him in terms of all the things that we do see him do uh, besides that speech, I guess I don't have a ton of respect for him, but I've got some respect for him because he he still has some military sense. Like he's not a complete buffoon or anything, <laughs> right? But sometimes he does act like I. I just think back to that other uh, volume where we see him eating a sandwich. And he's like dressed like he's about to have some fine dining. Like, what the heck is that, dude? Who eats yeah. a sandwich like that? I don't respect that. <laughs> uh, he's the kind of guy who would take a picture of a sandwich and post it on Instagram. <laughs> I definitely don't respect that. <laughs> I disrespect that. I don't know. Did this incident do anything for you to change your opinion on him one way or the other? I guess I still think of him in terms of how he's presented, uh, you know, in, in those flashes of of memory and images that I have of him. So, uh, like, I always feel like he's he's portrayed as like I said, like a noble noble leader, and maybe this goes some distance to, like, uh, justifying that that idea of him as being, like, a good leader or whatever, but mm-hmm. 
whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but overall, it's it's he he's got a pretty huge deficit to come back from. I I do think, uh, like losing the war that that one battle where it counted and being taken captive, like that's that's something that. I, I'm hard pressed to imagine that anyone can live down or come back from like realistically, I, I don't, I don't even know how he's still in the position that he is in and, and like, okay, maybe he was able to redeem himself in this one moment, but it, it's, I guess the best I can say is at least he didn't screw it up a second time and <laughs> confirm to the rest of us that he truly is the worst, the absolute worst. Yeah, but there's there's more ambiguity great... to it now, and we'll have to take that. <laughs> yeah, that's not really the kind of praise that I would give to someone. Like, ideally, the praise should be that you shouldn't have been bad enough to screw us over in the first place. <laughs> you should have won the first battle. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Then we wouldn't be in this position. Exactly. 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 <laughs> so, I guess if he was in front of me, if he was a real dude, I'd be like, I thank you for winning this one, but I uh, I can't give you a high five. I just, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. <laughs> Would you shake I'm his not hand? Give you... uh, no. <laughs> you don't want to touch him. <laughs> I'm not gonna give you a pat on the back. I'm not gonna shake your hand. I'll I'll be like uh I I might give you a nod, a silent a silent nod, but that's that's about it as far as or as much as I'm gonna give you. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe a whistle, maybe like a you know <laughs> like a cat call whistle. I'll give you that. How about that? <laughs> Hey, buddy, nice gams. <laughs> you got legs from here to yaya. <laughs> oh, boy. Yep. Okay. Section 11. You ready? Do it. Amuro tries to intercept the jet with the nuclear payload, and it's just a mad race. The Xeon jet launches both of its nukes before it is shot down by the Federation. Amuro manages to boost to the missiles before they get away from him, and he disables them. He crashes into Revel's flagship, but somehow manages to accidentally catch Elran's aide, who is also a traitor, and trying to escape. Makave realizes that the battle is lost. He leads a small mobile for he leads a small mobile suit force in his personal mobile suit, the Gaian and buys enough time for Xeon to send up some ships back into space. Presumably, those ships contain men and raw materials from the mines that can be used to continue feeding the Xeon war machine in space. He covers their escape with a nuclear explosion. The Battle of Odessa is over, and most of the Xeon forces have been wiped off Earth. The next phase of the war returns back to space. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, stirring end to this to this uh, battle, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, I think about the very last page of of this volume where it goes. 
The Battle of Edessa came to an end. Once Zeon's vanquished forces were swept off the Earth, the tide of the war turned. Once again, it was to be fought in space, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is a clear point of demarcation. This is a turning point in the story for us. Yeah. Where we're watching, you know, this is the moment where the the heroes, at, at least conventionally speaking, <laughs> that we've been following, uh, this is the moment where they reverse their misfortunes and uh you know i i guess that's the thing of it right where we've experienced so much loss and defeat on their part up to this point that it's almost built it up for us to to the peak where now we 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 as the readers are engaged enough and invested enough that the idea of reversing this and, uh, you know, having a sweeping victory, that's, you know, something to look forward to, something to to excite us uh, moving forward into the other volumes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, man, it's it's a great end to the book, a great end to this section. I, I, I particularly love the scene where <clears throat> the traitor is running off and, yeah. you know, Amuro is able to stop the bombs, but even in that moment, he gets this little extra, this little extra, you know, cherry on top of his victory, which is he gets to, like, kill this one dude that was willing to, like, he, he essentially represents everything that is wrong with the upper brass in the military, which is they're all just a bunch of cowards and, uh, you know, self-seeking, uh, you know, bastards and he gets to grab this guy and just mess him up did he kill him i don't i wasn't i was under the impression that he just captured him oh okay maybe he didn't kill him (laughs) (laughs) you just imagined him like squeezing squeezing him to death because like the dude was in the gundam's hand (laughs) yeah if if he had just squeezed that would have been a bloody mess pop that dude like a tube of toothpaste yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah no that that scene really was a good scene too um yeah i, I think the stuff that uh amro says it's it's almost like a microcosm for the the theme of gundam because this guy's tr- trying to escape uh his name is his name and rank is lieutenant colonel judok and he was he was uh an aide to elran the traitor um so he's trying to escape and then uh, Amro manages to trap him under the Gundam's hand, and while while he's got him trapped, Amro says to him, "You're the one who yelled at me on White Base's bridge. So you boss people around all the, so you boss people around, and all the while, how dirty of you! It's all it's all because people such as you." And he's just like <laughs> enraged, you yeah. know, like that. <clears throat> That's a good scene where all of that emotion pours out where he's he finally sees somebody who it's just the hypocrisy of adults man letting letting down the youth again yeah and he he gets to confront that head on I also have a question uh for you about Makave mhm so there's a scene here where you know he's 
he's uh he's accepted that he's lost and he's going to make kind of his final stand uh you know whatever whatever his plans may be right yeah and there's this moment where one of his um underlings is talking to him and they're asking they're they're asking him whether um he says i understand that the supreme Cam- commander sheeran issued a secret order that was Giren? to take effect oh Giren issued a secret order that was to take effect if the fortunes of the battle turned against us namely to fire all ballistic missiles in our possessions at major cities under federation control to raise them to the ground and he goes are we to carry it out and then his response is for me the zionist zionist ideal isn't worth a single porcelain masterpiece (laughs) like how did you interpret that so was he saying not to set set off the bombs or was he encouraging him to he was saying not to do it okay yeah that's what i i read too right yeah so i was like okay i guess he really does love earth culture that much <laughs> he's a he's a true weeb man he can't stand yeah. to see all his anime get destroyed yeah he's willing to lose the entire empire if it means that he gets to keep his uh waifu pillow <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. I. I. I wasn't sure. Like, I. I read that scene. I was like, no way that that's what he meant. Even though that's what I was processing it as, I was like, why? Why wouldn't he just blow them all up? But I, he doesn't I guess want not. to damage all their art. Yeah, he's really into their porcelain. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, earlier in in, uh, in the flashback volumes, there was there was a scene where he was like talking about a, a vase or something. So like it it was supposed to establish how he's deeply... a lover of art. Exactly, he's a he's a lover of the culture and the art. So bombing all those cities would only destroy untold pieces of Earth artwork and yeah. That would uh that he wouldn't want that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Does you've, that you've clarified that? For does me. that redeem him in your eyes, Albert? Uh, no. <laughs> his his failure was just meant that the Federation got a you know didn't lose more lives in uh, any of their major cities. So he's still an incompetent, I guess, or or a fool, but. Uh, I I just look at it as we ben- they benefited from his uh, foolishness. I, I don't think that that makes him a hero. <laughs> mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, man. Any final thoughts on the book as a whole, Albert? Just what I was saying earlier. I mean, it's a heck of a note to end on, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's. We're, we've primed the pump to the point where we're ready to uh, moving forward to see what what the final end game of this is. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're about four volumes from the end of this, so yeah, uh, this this is the moment in time that we we we've been sitting back here watching our heroes, uh, you know, kind of take take it on the chin and. Now it's time for them to dish out some 
sweet, sweet justice. <laughs> it sounds like you're describing to me that one scene from uh, the Dark Phoenix Saga when Wolverine is fighting the Hellfire Club and they just send him down into the sewers and the last panel of that issue is him <laughs> grabbing hold of a pipe, looking up, and he's all messed up and he pops his claws and he says something like, all right, suckers, you've had your best shot. Now it's my turn. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. It's a pretty famous scene. It's It might be up there in terms of uh, the best that Claremont's ever done. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's up there because it's not full of exposition. It's just one panel. <laughs> it's one page with Wolverine saying that one thing. <laughs> maybe there might be some uh captions or whatever but you know you get the gist of it <laughs> exactly <laughs> you got anything i, I also yeah I, I did also like the back matter in this volume like there's a an illustration and a short little uh essay from makoto yukimura not not even really an essay just like a few words of praise but makoto yukimura is one of my favorite manga cook also, he he's the guy who did Planetess, and the one he's most famous for is Vinland Saga, which is a pretty big series and anime and manga. Uh, it's pretty big right now. But Planetess is what I really, really love from him. And to see him uh, do an illustration here, uh, he illustrates that scene when Miharu says goodbye to her siblings really a well-done pinup but what he writes is how uh yasuhiko inks everything with a brush so yukimura when he was doing his illustration he tried to imitate that style and he said it was just too hard like he kept on trying and he couldn't he couldn't get it down like he was able to use the brush for the background but when it came to the characters the figures in the scene he ended up going back to his g-pen so it, it really does like remind you that Yaz inked all of this manga with a brush, which is pretty crazy to think about. It's That just sounds like a lot of work, and uh, you know it's not normal. But I also like what Makoto Yukimura had to say about uh, the story, too. Like, I'm just going to read what he wrote here. He said, I like the story of Miharu. Personally, I think it's an episode that crystallizes that certain mood, the generosity, the sorrow that envelops Gundam as a whole. Yeah, that, that's some that's a good way to describe it. And uh, he goes on to say, um, I just couldn't imagine anything more perfect. Yasuhiko's brush brings out the generosity and sorrow in Miharu's arc to the fullest. I feel like I've gleaned the point of the origin's creation from this one episode. Thank you, Mr. Yasuhiko, for giving us the best Miharu ever. Good stuff in terms of extras. And there's like a few pinups here in the back with just great paintings. Man, those are just works of art filling out the last few pages of the book. It's, yeah. it's good stuff, man. It's fun to look at. It's a poetic, uh, you know, observation on his part. But I, I did appreciate that as well. Yeah, great stuff. I'm looking forward to... Volume nine next month. Yep, same here, man. It's uh, this was a very satisfying chapter, and 
yeah, man, I'm, I, it's setting us up for a great conclusion. So I, I'm, I'm game, dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But before we get there, we've got next week. Next week, we will do a kind of a broad retrospective of Image Comics in honor of their 30th anniversary, which occurs this year. Or I, I don't remember exactly when their first comic came out or which month, but it was 30 years ago. So figured we'd do a little thing to at least acknowledge and even celebrate their 30th anniversary. We'll probably talk a little bit about the history of Image and talk about what Image Comics has meant to us over the years. We also plan to share our own, each of us will share our own individual lists of our personal favorite Image Comics. So I think it'll be a fun conversation. I I don't know what your favorite Image Comics are. I think you might have a good idea what mine are, but (laughs) I think it'll be entertaining to... uh, reveal our list to each other live for the first time in next week's recording. Yeah. 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 I, it's going to be a fun one. You know, it's, it's not one that's, uh, you know, reading intensive for us, but it, it'll be a nice trip down memory lane. And, um, you know, if anyone has anything to say about, uh, what we read today or heck if you want to talk to us about like some of the image stuff in preparation for next week's episode, you know, feel free to hit us up at uh, Between the Gutters Podcast at gmail.com or, you know, follow us on our Instagram where Between the Gutters or tweet at us, you know, and uh, whatever you're listening to us on, if you could post it somewhere or share it and let people know uh, whatever whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you can give us like five stars, it'll help us with the algorithm. So, yeah, we re- really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're not comfortable using social media and you still want to talk to us, all you got to do is roll down your window and scream Albert's name really, really loud at the top of your lungs. He'll definitely hear you. (laughs) I will crash through the wall like Kool-Aid and be like, oh, yeah. What's up? (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Between the Gutters. We appreciate it. We will catch you next time. Peace.